everybody, and welcome to our Sustainable Finance in Action podcast with my guest today, uh, Dr. Urs Remsayer from uh, 12, 12 Capital and also Daniel King Robinson from uh, 12 Capital as well. Gentlemen, a very warm welcome to you both. Um, I'll begin with, uh, with with Urs to begin with, uh, CIO and founder partner of 12 Capital. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background, please? Yes, sure. So um, we founded 12 Capital back in 2010. So I'm one of the co-founders. Um, we specialized uh, in the uh, insurance sector. So we do uh, a lot of uh, different uh, strategies, insurance linked securities, cat bonds, uh, insurance bonds, uh, equity, uh, and also uh, private uh, debt. Uh, managing roughly $4 billion uh, in terms of assets under management, 40 people. We have an office in London, uh, in Zurich, and in uh, Munich. So this is uh, 12 Capital. Previously, uh, I was uh, working uh, for, uh, for a kind of fund of hedge fund company where I've been building up the Alice business. And then uh, in the financial market crisis, 2008-9, uh, this company got into trouble and we took the opportunity to do a management buyout and that was uh, was basically the starting point of uh, 12 capital and and previous to that uh, i spent my whole career at credit suisse credit suisse financial products credit suisse first boston in london in hong kong uh, in zurich um, but uh, i was always special uh, specialized in the insurance sector first as an analyst debt equity then portfolio manager on equity so um, I've always looked at this sector from, from different angles for the last 30 years. Fantastic. Thank you very much for that, Urs. That's a really, well, what a background. That's quite a, quite a history to, to go through. And here you are, and, look, and looking so young as well. So, you know. Yeah, a... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that background. Um, and, and Daniel, uh, who, is our, who is the strategy leader, sustainability and climate investing. Uh, a very warm welcome to you, Daniel. Please tell our audience all about you. Yeah, thanks, John. And first, it's a real privilege to be here. And I hope I can uh, deliver a strong New Year message uh, for myself. Uh, my career spans over the best part of 25 years in more. Well, when I started, I was at HSBC back in 1998 as a client services representative. So really, my uh, career has progressed since then. But in more recent history, um, I was heading up uh, the Global Equity Advisory at a bank called EFG, where I was really running the global equity and the recommended lists, very importantly, carving out thematic uh, actively managed certificates and uh, structured products. Prior to that, um, I was working at another large Swiss bank, Bank von Tobel, for the best part of uh, 10 years, where I became uh, their head of European equities within asset management. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really decided to leave there so I could focus more on uh, thematic investing and uh, I guess really having a closer, more bespoke relationship with regard to monetizing the shift in investor appetite, especially with regard to global digitalization and climate change investing. Um, so I've done a lot of work in those areas uh, previously. So obviously very happy uh, to be at 12 Capital uh, with a large emphasis on climate change. Yes, this is which, which um, brings us perfectly onto the, the, the reason for the podcast today, which um, um, we've recently recorded with you an exceptional video, actually, and very thought-provoking uh, video on sustainability and ESG investing. And um, it's, it, I've got to say, really quite something from my point of view, because 
you specialize in investing in the insurance industry, um, which um, to some would be fairly niche because it, you really do specialize in that particular um, area. Um, and so, I mean, first and foremost, you know, why would you choose to invest in, I'll, I'll put this to us to begin with, actually. Um, why, why would you choose to invest in, in, in just solely the insurance industry as such? Yeah, the, the uh, insurance industry is, is a bit different than uh, other industries in many regards. It's a highly regulated industry to, to start with because the, the policyholders have to be protected uh, to make sure that they, they get their money when they need it. And uh, when, when uh, there is a claim or in, in life insurance uh, that the pensions uh, are basically safe. So that's, that's uh, one of the reasons. So highly, highly regulated. Then it's very complex in terms of business model. So uh, from an analytical point of view of how to understand the industry, so it takes a long time to really uh, understand what's going on, what are the key drivers, what are the challenges. Uh, and that's why specialization makes sense. And we decided to specialize in the industry, but then invest in, in all different um, asset classes because this allows us to uh, use the synergies between uh, these different um, asset classes. So we, we, we just look at the company once and then we, we can invest in equity, can invest in debt, we can buy the cat bond, uh, we can do private, uh, private uh, equity, private debt with the same company. So all that uh, is based on uh, on a shared um, uh, knowledge and, and uh, also analytical skills. Hmm. That's amazing, and that's really quite that. That really helps with certainly my understanding, and I'm sure our audience's understanding, because as you say, in such a highly regulated area, you, it, if your if if your specialism is there, you can focus on it entirely rather than yeah. trying to do lots of other things. It's purely exactly. And uh, I think today in asset management, you're either very big and, and uh, you, you, then you, you can offer cheap products or you're highly specialized. Mm. Uh, and uh, we decided to be specialized in a niche um, and, and that's, uh, that's our strategic positioning. If you're somewhere in the middle, then, then you get squeezed. Mm. Understood. Yeah. So, so the obvious onward question from that really is um, you, when you look at ESG and sustainability, um, for some companies, it's very obvious what that is in, in the terms of your, if you, you're generating a product, as an example, is the product made of plastic? Is, it, is there recycling going on? That sort of thing. But not so obvious from an insurance industry point of view. So how, how is the insurance industry affected by climate change? I mean, the um, insurance industry is at the forefront of, um, of being affected by climate change in terms of natural catastrophes. Uh, and, um, the, and also uh, in, in, in terms of uh, addressing the issue, I mean, uh, some of the reinsurance company tip, companies typically started already 20, 25 years ago to talk about climate change. Uh, and they need to look at it and they need to make sure that the, the risks are uh, correctly priced. But most recently, I mean, 2017, uh, where it really started in, in, in uh, recently was the most expensive year ever uh, for the global insurance industry in terms of uh, uh, insured uh, losses due to natural catastrophes. Um, it was then followed by 18, 19 other expensive years, 2021, 20, again, in excess of 100 billion of insured losses. So uh, everybody saw the pictures, right? Flood, hurricanes, typhoons, uh, uh, all these kind of things uh, just accelerated, and uh, and and that's where the industry started to think about climate change. 
uh, whether this is uh, just uh, 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 just unlucky because last year's were expensive, whether this is a new trend, uh, and then ultimately are the risks correctly priced. Um, but clearly, these were not great years for the industry in terms of uh, profitability. And that's interesting, actually, because uh, one of the questions I had for you was, does the insurance industry underprice the risk of climate change? And obviously, pricing, as you've just said, is is critical to this. Yes. I mean, uh, if if this is a new trend, what we see, or if this is the new normal the last five years, then clearly the risks are uh, significantly underpriced. If it, this is just uh, bad luck and we had five years of high losses and uh, we will have another five years of low losses, then uh, this uh, this might be fine. But if this were the new normal, or even we see you now an accelerating trend, uh, premiums for uh, natural catastrophe coverage would have to increase significantly. Mm. Which is quite frightening, really, when you look at yeah. everything else going up, and certainly post-pandemic as well. Yeah. Um, you know uh, that that is likely. To- and also, what what we what we already see in certain areas of the world is certain risks become simply uninsurable. So uh, if you think about uh, homeowner insurance in, in Key West and Florida, I mean, this, this becomes more or less uninsurable because it's either too expensive or the risk is too high. Mm-hmm. So there will be whole areas in the world where people are, will not be able to, insure, uh, to buy insurance coverage anymore because uh, the exposure is too high, especially wow. by flood-exposed, wind-exposed uh, areas. Mm. It's quite a scary prospect, actually. And when you look at, the, as you say, climate change hitting these people, um, so, I mean, how can the insurance industry accelerate to the, uh, the time to net zero? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, um, one of the big um, business uh, segments of insurance, but also reinsurance, is uh, what is called energy. So that's oil, uh, that's gas, that's carbon producers. Uh, they, they all buy uh, insurance coverage. The question now, which is heavily debated within the industry, is uh, should uh, the industry not insure these risks anymore? Mm. So that would accelerate, obviously, uh, the way to net zero because the, the cost of productions would go up mm. for these CO2 heavy um, CO2 emissions um, type of uh, industries. Um, so this is this is a big debate in uh, within uh, the insurance specialist what to do with um, with clients uh, who who basically produce a lot of uh, CO2. Mm. Um, it could also be carved out like like a bad bank. That's also a possibility that it's put somewhere in a, in a separate insurance company, but that doesn't solve the problem, right? The, the emissions will still be there. So the best way is, is probably that the insurance uh, companies help uh, these clients to, to reduce emissions, uh, to accelerate, uh, as you said, the way, way to net zero by, by doing that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really on the underwriting on, on, the, on the insurance book. They can do a lot. They can do. Definitely. And, and one final question for you. What do you expect the regulator to do with regards to climate-related risks? I think the regulator is already, or the regulator is already closely looking into this. Uh, it goes back to to your uh, initial questions: Are the risks properly priced? So if this, if the regulator did come to the conclusion that the risks are not correctly priced, they will have to intervene. Uh, and uh, what they're most likely going to do is to uh, increase the uh, capital requirements for for these climate-related um, risks. Yeah. Uh, and that would again increase the cost of insurance uh, for these uh, exposed uh, exposed uh, zones and uh, and uh, clients. 
So I think it's only going into one direction. It becomes more expensive to get insurance coverage and if you have uh, something which is exposed to climate change in, in, uh, to be insured. Yeah. And that, that, can only, it, that will only accelerate now unless there yes. is a mention, I guess. And what is also uh, a big worry of, of regulators is the uncertainty around climate change in terms of uh, what does it mean in, in terms of insured losses? What does it mean in terms of natural catastrophes? Regulators do not like uncertainty, and basically, if there is uncertainty, they just increase the capital charge to to uh, to be on the safe side. So, capital requirements will go up for uh, natural catastrophes. That's that's for sure. Yeah, definitely, and certainly, markets don't like uncertainty either. No, no, no. And then also the cost of capital from uh, from an equity investment perspective are going up. Mm. Uh, because if if investors think there is big uncertainty of what especially reinsurers are doing, that they will just uh, ask for a higher risk premium, yeah. uh, and then uh, and then just that doesn't help for the stock price. On the other hand, side if if the companies can increase transparency and show they're in, they're on top of things, they they understand the risks, mm-hmm. they could uh, basically reduce the risk premium and stocks will outperform. Yeah, and certainly, you know, because there's no there's no time for for market sentiment anymore. I guess from this perspective, it's got to be the markets are very sensitive to any change yeah. area now. Yeah, 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 definitely. Urs, thank you so much for that. That that, that that's really insightful. I'm going to move on to to Daniel now, um, and I've got a few questions for you, Daniel. So, um, what is your thoughts on sustainability? There are many sustainable offerings available in the market, but is focusing on ESG enough or are there other aspects that you need to consider? Yeah, it's a great question, John. I think, firstly, I think sustainability, it's quite a a broad theme and sometimes I think really lacks definition within the investment community. And I think a large part uh, of that lack of tangibility, if you will, is because sustainability is really such an overarching Theme. If you think about it, it really relates to the, you know, the climate crisis. It relates to other, you know, environmental and social issues like moving towards a circular economy, resource conservation, biodiversity, and human rights. So it's again a broad term that might unfortunately open things up uh, for misinterpretation. So in many ways, uh, I think sustainability represents a kind of judgment about the most appropriate action given environmental, social, and economic goals and constraints. So what is really uh, key for me when I think about sustainability and when we talk about sustainability is first of all, having a clear and concise sustainable goal. Mm. And let's face it, if you think about the the sustainable development goals, they've really laid out a crucial framework to really build upon those objectives. So I think there's obviously quite a broad array of options there, but again, what's important for me when I think about sustainability is a process that for me is sustainability having a clear process that starts with a real objective and to kind of answer your question that really incorporates esg as the kind of engine room and if you will safety valve of that process but i don't think it necessarily ends there it should also incorporate a type of reconciliation process especially in terms of qualitative engagement and really ensuring that one is not really relying purely on third-party data providers, you know, to kind of plant your sustainability rubber stamp. So it really, for me, is a process that has a number of layers. Yeah, and, and yeah, that, that's an interesting point, actually, because that, you know, that here, here begins the greenwashing, potentially, of the rubber stamping. I've ticked this box, therefore, we are green. And that's not necessarily the case, but without a clear objective, 
how do you know you've achieved what you want to achieve? I think that's absolutely key to this. And, and certainly key for you, actually, what is the key, the key with regard to achieving net zero? And where do you feel 12 Capital can make a difference? Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of, um, you know, schools of thought when it comes to achieving net zero. And I think not just using the, lever you know, leveraging the capabilities of 12 Capital, but really... Um, one of the elephants in the room is, uh, you know, bridging the funding gap. And I think, or, you know, if you want to call it a budget deficit, and I think there's been a lot of uh, press about that recently. If you think about the IPCC and what they've stated in terms of the investment that's required to get us there, it's obviously very significant. I think Mark Carney as well, he uh, stressed the urgency about the race to zero and really, you know, mobilizing the private sector. So that's really why I think, you have to look at the upstream side of things as well, not just down the downstream in terms of renewables, uh, mitigation, adaptation. We really have to look at that reallocation of capital. And if you think about it, actually, uh, you know, the financial industry uh, sits on 400 or just over $400 trillion of assets. So there's a, there's a lot of firepower there that really can be deployed to help get us to net zero. So for me, the financial industry and especially the insurance industry is really uh, key in getting us there. Yeah, definitely. And you talk about this in the video, actually, you know, the cost of, of getting us there. Um, uh, but of course, equally, the, the, the horrific cost of not getting us there, not investing the money. And of course, that would that, you know, and actually starting to move towards those goals is, is quite something. Going back to greenwashing, um, which is becoming a more and more important topic. What are your thoughts here in on how do you avoid this and making investment decisions with regard to climate change initiatives? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very big topic, as we know, uh, receiving a lot of regulatory scrutiny. I mean, in a, in a nutshell, there are, two, there are two types of greenwashing. I mean, there's corporate greenwashing in terms of firms advertising their public you know, environmental credential, credentials wrongly. Um, but for me, as a, as a climate change uh, portfolio manager, really... There's also another layer as portfolio greenwashing considerations, which I think are quite paramount in the you know, construction of portfolios, um, especially those portfolios that are trying to correspond to uh, net zero alignment strategies. And I think commonly used uh, portfolio construction mechanisms, they really fail to deliver a consistency with their impact objectives. Mm -hmm. So I think really what I'm trying to say is climate strategies are sometimes... Um, inconsistent with the actual objective of influencing to reduce their emissions. And I think a key determinant that I look at is the stock weights or the portfolio construction. Um, and for many portfolio managers, that construction um, can drift away from the objectives and they might be looking you know, at style objectives or in particular, they may weight their stocks according to market cap. And I, th I think really climate strategies don't really look at the changes in uh, you know the climate scores, we rely a lot on climate data, mm. but I think it's not good enough just to put a you know large weight on those companies which have the best scores. I think what's very important is to also assess the progress and really, from a portfolio construction angle, to really weight according to the progress that we see in relation to those impacts mm. or the goals of the uh, strategies or funds. So I think that's very important as a as another layer of greenwashing in terms of consider in terms of consideration yeah yeah you definitely need to look really very very deep to to understand that i guess and i, I suppose as fund managers 
as well, you, you get to get a feel for com- companies by talking to them, I suppose, which is something that is, you know, slightly removed from where public in- uh, the public are when they're investing in advisors and, and, and the like and brokers who are who are advising on these investments. You guys are the ones that are right at the cold face to be able to really understand those people that little bit more. There's something to that, I guess, isn't there? Um, and certainly um, from an investment perspective, what are the differentiating factors you consider when carving out a climate-based strategy? Yeah, I think uh, I mentioned it before, you need to have an identity, you need to have an objective. Mm. Uh, we label it as climate sustainability because we're really focused on the transition of capital by the insurance and broader financial industries I mentioned, who are really, let's face it, the key sponsors in reallocating capital. Um, but within that, our definition of transition within the financial industry is not simply, you know, looking at how they're reducing their operational carbon footprint or, you know, just focusing on scope one and two, but it's also looking at how they're steering capital on the underwriting and liability side and also on the investment and asset side in order to move capital away from fossil fuels and more towards mitigation and adaptation investing. So really the key objective is investing in those financial companies that are steering away from high carbon activities more to low carbon activities. I guess another differentiating factor for us and and key to everything, and I mentioned it before in terms of reconciling a lot of the quant data we receive, especially from external providers, is really our qualitative engagement process. Um, And obviously, using our in-house expertise, our wealth of knowledge, we're really able to talk to these companies, talk to these insurance companies, and really properly assess and reconcile which insurance companies are making an impact Mm. and why. And that's a very important thing to do, to really be close to the companies, Mm. to understand the progress they're making, the challenges they're seeing, and uh, of course, the opportunities they're seeing. Not only that, we're not just looking um, at insurance and you know affiliated financial subsectors, but we're also looking at transition enablers. We're looking at climate tech, fintech companies, really that are allowing, let's say, the financial industry or the insurance industry to make those greener and cleaner decisions and really you know integrate a better ESG process. Whether you're looking at you know. Um, data providers, ESG data providers, or um, whether you're using technology to reduce your own operational, um, you know, greenhouse gas footprints. Uh, I think finally, just as a, you know, a final point, we, we are looking as well at the financial impacts, the positive impacts that a company may see by uh, reducing their carbon footprint. So obviously there can be positive um, impacts in terms of their operating costs, I think it gives them better externalities in terms of their branding, access to new markets. But I think as well, a lot of companies that I'm talking to are also talking about, um, you know, when it comes to transition risk, which is a key topic on on many of the boards, Mm. is really the implications they're seeing on the equity risk premium. So it's not just about adjusting to climate change. It's also looking at the advantages of doing that. And I think, uh, you know, where we have such a focus on the engagement side really gives us an understanding of what they're doing no. and uh, the impacts they're seeing. Yeah. That makes a, yeah, that makes a lot of sense actually. And, and as you said, I mean, there's a lot to unpick there, but certainly, you know, the, the most important bit, I, I, I guess really is, you know, fundamentally understanding that, that what you're investing into or what, you know, that they are actually 
doing what they say they're, they're doing really i think ultimately that's where you, you you know you need to have that trust that you you've got the right data that tells you that it's informing you correctly um certainly but one last question really which i think relates to both of you if you don't mind but i certainly um start with daniel uh, how do you engage with companies on the topic of climate change so when you're approaching these guys you know broaching that subject and how you know obviously i, I guess really sometimes there must be some difficult conversations around you know, what if they're not doing enough? Yeah, it's a, it's a very good point. I think, as I mentioned before, engagement is key. It's a, it's a way to uh, make sure you're not relying on third-party data. But what we do um, is we perform an emission and transition litmus test, which forms part of a, a ranking. So we use our own you know, intellectual property, our own ranking system, not only as a reconciliation, but to really grade these companies. Um, and uh, so we're using this ranking system really to score these companies. So not only does that form part of an exclusion criteria, but it feeds again, as I mentioned, in terms of greenwashing uh, into portfolio construction based on the strengths of those scores. And I think the key areas we're really, um, you know, asking these companies is we're trying to gauge their participation in global, globally or regionally recognized frameworks, whether it be TCFD, GFANS, you know, whether they're part of the net zero insurance alliance or you know they're part of the sign uh, you know or using sorry the science-based targets initiative so you know those are key key uh, considerations we look at and uh, especially for an insurance company we're really assessing their risk management process in, in, in place to address climate related risk but also for all financials taking into account you know their investment activities on the investment side what's very important for us as well especially if we're looking at a reinsurance company as an example is on the liability or underwriting side to really assess or engage with the, you know are they really assessing or engaging with their clients to plan a reduction in their emissions or are they using any kind of reallocation measures or divestures to move away from fossil fuels and of course to avoid the likes of stranded assets which, which of course has been quite a key topic recently and uh, i think you know, as, as well, very important is we closely monitor, monitor the organization-wide targets they have on climate change. We assess the greenhouse gas target emission reduction. So we want to understand how much they're doing operationally, how much that has been increasing and what the targets, what targets they have, let's say by 2030 or by 2050. Ideally, of course, we'd like to see them uh, forming net zeros to as early as 2030. But of course, that's quite a, quite a tough task to achieve. And I think as well, you know, for, for an asset manager and for an insurance company that has an asset management division to really understand, you know, the mix of ESG and sustainable assets, um, you know, versus their total AUM, I think that's also, you know, good to get an understanding and how that's improving through time. So you can understand from that exercise, it's quite broad, mm. um, it's quite targeted. And, you know, with those kind of questions, we're able to, you know, really articulate our own in-house scoring yeah amazing stuff obviously there's a lot of doom and gloom around this there must be some positivity around this as well i mean are you what what sort of great things are you seeing in the insurance industry you think actually yeah you know that this these guys are really playing playing the right game and moving things towards a, a better future are there anything in particular that you've seen over the last coming last year or two that uh, that that gives you that sort of um, positivity, if you like, around what we're investing into. Yeah, I think there are many aspects to that question. I think uh, 
what I've what I've witnessed, and again, this comes down to engagement with a lot of companies, is they increasingly are becoming uh, parts and parcel of a lot of these regulatory initiatives, regulatory bodies, and I think uh, you know they do have a full understanding of the promises of Paris. Mm. So it's clear they not only want to meet those objectives, but certainly. Um, they want to exceed those objectives, whether it's, you know, in terms of scope one and two emissions or taking more action on the liability side. What I've, you know, obser observed through the engagement exercises is now a lot more scrutiny, especially from the insurance industry when it comes um, to the liability side or to the underwriting side in making sure their clients are also um, taking the measures that are necessary for the world to get to net zero. So I think obviously the you know, the goals that have been set by regulators, they are quite <clears throat> drastic. It's going to take a, it's going to take a while to get us there. But I think, mm. you know, bottom up from listening to these companies, it really seems like they are taking action. I think, uh, you know, the measures that have been um, initiated through COP26 and, uh, you know, the initiatives that Mark Carney has taken is really, uh, you know, jolting the whole uh, private sector. And I think uh, that progress will probably accelerate going through time. That's great to hear. And and Urs, from you, similar sort of thing. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think uh, the uh, the last five years were really a wake up call for the industry in terms of this acceleration of of natural disasters, uh, and uh, it's quite obvious that there is a link to to climate change to to what happened to the industry and and uh, the results, the uh, the profitability has not been great. So they really need to do something and to address the issues. They basically forced to um to uh, look into it and 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 uh, form a form an opinion and to improve um improve their underwriting portfolio so i think uh, that that's that's the positive side of uh, of the development and the industry uh, insurance but then in a wider um, sense uh, the whole financial industry has a big leverage right uh, to to accelerate uh, to to net zero, so we're probably much more than even uh, green energy and so on. Because if the whole capital, as Dan explained, is steered into different uh, area, but also certain things uh, are not insured anymore, insurance premiums are going up. There's huge leverage, and and this can really make the difference in accelerating um, the the time to net zero. Fabulous. That's really fantastic. We've got cause for optimism. That's the, the important yeah. thing. I hate to leave on a, on a you know because climate change is 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 very much very much on everybody's consciousness. You know, and and um, you know if I, I know we we talked recently anyway about COP twenty six not being a full stop, but actually a catalyst to start really thinking more broadly for everybody. Um, you know, in whatever industry they're in, but certainly. Um, um, hearing your uh, specialisms in, in, in the insurance industry today has been absolutely fascinating and certainly not something I think everybody considers when you talk about, you know, there's no, as I say, there's no visible product. And I've worked in the insurance industry for, for nearly 30 years myself, and you, there's nothing tangible physically about it, but actually what it fixes and what it mends is what it's there for. It's about protecting those people who can't afford to protect their own assets um, with, with their own capital. So, you know, it's vital that it gets on board with the, with, with climate change. And I think that's it's been fascinating hearing that today. So thank you so much for that. So for our listeners, um, this particular podcast is really an introduction to the video we want you to go and watch from 12 capital we'll have a link to this podcast so you'll be able to click on that it'll take you straight there but if you're going to search for it 
It's on the LIBF website and it's under our Center for Sustainable Finance. If you look in that section, the video will be there. It's also available on YouTube and also available on 12 Capital's own website as well. It's, it's been fascinating talking to both of you today. Um, so from uh, myself, John Somerville, Head of Financial Services here at the London Institute of Banking Finance, from uh, Dr. Urs Ramsayer and from Daniel king Robinson. I bid you all a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very yeah. much. Thank you very much. Thank you, John. Thank you.